Broadcasting live from the Pro Business Channel studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Capital Club Radio, brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance. Please welcome your host, Chairman and CEO, Michael Flock. Thank you and good afternoon from Atlanta. Uh, we're really delighted today to have a very unique, uh, colorful uh I call a friend of the firm, uh, Michael Hollingsworth, who's an attorney and partner with the law firm Nelson Mullins right here in Atlanta. He's co-head of the firm's Mergers and Acquisitions Group and Investment Management Group. He also focuses pretty much on the middle market corporate transactions, M&A, divestitures, and joint ventures. He also serves on the firm's executive committee. He represents private equity and hedge funds relative to their formation, operations, and investments. His industry experience is very diverse and includes food and beverage, consumer branded products, healthcare, construction, technology, telecommunications, media, manufacturing, distribution, and even business services. He serves on the board of trustees for the Woodruff Arts Center and the St. Andrews Swanee School and is also a board member of the Tulane Fund. He's got a Master of Laws in Taxation from the University of Alabama School of Law, a JD from Samford University, and a BA from Tulane University in Political Science. In the spirit of full disclosure, Michael Hollingsworth is our primary attorney at Flock Specialty Finance, and we selected him and Nelson Mullins because they can bring large law firm expertise, experience, and resources to middle market companies like Flock. They understand entrepreneurs, and they are great problem solvers. So, Michael, you told me that your dad was a very successful uh, entrepreneur, I think, in the construction industry and retail sporting goods. Uh, You watched how he started and grew his businesses. You admired your father. In fact, I think you said you even worked for him. But why why did you choose the path of, of law? versus yourself going into that business. Well, I might not have told you the rest of the story, Michael, but um, um, my father did start uh, a landscaping and construction company in Middle Tennessee, uh, really straight out of high school. Uh, he skipped the uh, the college route and, and really was into business. Um, did well with that business, started a general, he, he saw a need for a sporting goods store in our area because we had to drive to Nashville to just get team sporting goods equipment and things like that were about 50 to 60 miles away um founded this store in manchester tennessee and and did really well with it and that's where i worked after school from the time i was uh, in fourth grade not to say i didn't have any fun when i was growing up but uh (laughs) he did put me to work quite a bit um but my dad uh, uh, fell ill at a relatively young age and um, when i went to tulane undergrad i i did intend to come back to Middle Tennessee. In my mind, I already had a sort of an expansion plan for the sporting goods uh, aspect of his businesses and um, thought I would, you know, uh, expand to other markets in Middle Tennessee, uh, bigger markets. Um, And he got sick while I was in undergrad, and so I really never got the chance to come back Mm -hmm. and work with him. Um, At that time, I realized that uh, I was better suited to become an advisor to Mm -hmm business owners and entrepreneurs and, and pursued the law school route. Mm-hmm. So 
were these experiences then that you had working for him and with him, were these truly formative then in your thoughts on business and how you serve entrepreneurs today? Well, I, I, a couple of things. Number one, uh, I saw how difficult retail is. Um, and so um, to me, professional services is a lot easier business than retail because you're always carrying a ton of inventory. Mm-hmm. And if you don't move that inventory, you're stuck with it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, two, I think that uh, the way I relate to clients is uh, largely uh, was largely developed uh, working as a clerk in my dad's store, waiting on customers of all types of people, learning how to relate to them and and help them, quite frankly. And uh, that could be anything from uh, professionals to, you know, construction workers. And mm-hmm. so I think that uh, helped me develop a way to relate to all types of people, uh, and which has helped greatly in the practice of law. So then it sounds like it, were, it was the development of personal relationship skills that you learned from your dad and the multiple businesses that he was in. Is that fair? Correct. I mean, I think that in any business, you know, the relationships are probably, you know, uh, everyone can study and learn the law, but how to apply it and, and number one, develop a relationship with a client so that you can help them. Some clients are risk averse, some are more entrepreneurial and you can actually tailor your specific advice to their personality and, and company culture. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is a, a large part of, of um, being a professional is not just saying, hey, here's the law, um, but helping them find a solution, mm-hmm. you know, with using the law as a backstop. So I can see here then how this might have evolved because today you're responsible for multiple industries, you know, healthcare, construction, technology. And specialty finance. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you do that one. I I forgot to list specialty finance. Uh, Yeah. I need to add that one to my list. That's a good afterthought there, Michael. Um, So, you know, uh, and Nelson Mullins then, I guess – You've got a big law firm, uh, a, a culture there, lots of infrastructure. But could we say that it's also the personalities, the personal skills of the individual attorneys that make a difference? Um, and, and I guess why are why did you choose Nelson Mullins as opposed to some of the other ones? Well, it has an entrepreneurial culture okay. and a very can-do sort of. You know, uh, uh, law firms are either on the same side of the table as their client or they're on the opposite side of the table sometimes because of their pricing model and the way they work with clients is it's almost adversarial to the client. And then you have to go deal with whoever you're negotiating against. We like to be on the same side of the table with our clients, mm-hmm. uh, kind of like a trusted advisor or partners with our clients. Right. Um, there's an old saying in the in the legal industry that, uh, clients hire lawyers, not law firms. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true. Um, mm-hmm. You know, clients um, do make buying decisions based on on particular lawyers. However, that particular lawyer can his uh, or her skill set and capabilities with respect to any given client can be greatly enhanced by the platform mm-hmm. of the firm they're on. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, if your business has a need in something other than corporate, such as labor and employment, for example, mm-hmm. I can I can call on the platform to help you with that because mm-hmm. that's not in my area of specialty. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a combination. First and foremost, 
you know, clients are looking to a specific lawyer and that lawyer's style and, and the way they solve problems to uh, to make their buying decision. But after that, you know, they can reap uh, benefits from from a, have the the firm platform and the expertise that is that is there on a larger platform like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Could you give us some examples then of, of how you built trust? Because you said, you know, you know, there's a famous expression, lawyers are hired, not law firms. So and you're at Nelson Mullins, a trusted advisor. How do you develop that trust? And do you have any stories or examples of well, how you've done that? Well, I would say that uh, here's an example, and, and I'm not talking about any particular M&A transaction in, in this example, but this has happened over and over again where – you know, we uncover something. Uh, I'm representing the buyer, and the buyer could be a private equity firm, could be a public company. But when we're doing our due diligence investigation with my team on the target, we uncover a, a problem, a mm-hmm. potential problem. Mm-hmm. And when you peel back the onion a little bit, you realize that, um, you know, you could spend fifty to $100,000 in legal work trying to see if, how big of a problem this is. But then you back away from it for a second and you realize if the, if the worst-case scenario occurs with mm-hmm. this particular issue, mm-hmm. it's going to cost the client maximum twenty grand. Mm-hmm. So it makes no sense to spend fifty grand to, mm-hmm. sa- to potentially right. save twenty. Right. So I don't mind telling the client I wouldn't spend this money. It prioritize. And, and so when you, when, you make the, when you give legal advice – and sometimes my advice is legal advice. Sometimes it's business advice. Mm-hmm. But when you give strategic or or legal advice to a client that you know seems to run against your best interest as far as the overall project fee, right. over time that builds a trusted advisor relationship because they realize that you're really spending their money the way you would spend your own if it was your project. And so I think uh, I think that's just an example that uh, you know when you when you use practical you know common everyday common sense in the rendering of that advice you know instead of just saying uh, some lawyers point out issues 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 and don't come up with any solutions solutions mm-hmm. and so I think uh, over time you know the trusted advisor role you know, usually does not occur on the first uh, project for a client. It, it develops right. over a period of time because of the consistency of advice and the, you know, uh, just getting to know one another and how, mm-hmm. you know, different clients have different ways they like to do things. Mm-hmm. Some people are really aggressive and mm-hmm. we can tailor our right. services for the super aggressive client. Although I will never advise someone to mm-hmm. be aggressive when the situation doesn't warrant it. Right. But some, some clients don't ever want an adversary, you know, situation and we have to advise that client in a different way. Right. And over time with both types of clients and there are many types of clients, it does develop the trust over time just because you're getting, giving them advice that helps their business and helps them, you know, move forward, grow, mitigate, mitigate risk at the same time. Mm-hmm. So so you're showing them also how to make economically sound decisions and not putting the uh, your motivation to building up a lot of fees Correct. for a transaction. I mean, we, we expect that a, a growing client, we will make our fees over a period of time. Right. Uh, we don't have to make them on 
the first or right. every project. So right. that's that's the mindset is right. a partnership over a long period of time, uh-huh. which is why, uh, you know, I, I told you this last week, um, any client who, you know, sort of treats us like a vendor, mm-hmm. you know, it's just not as enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so we like to go deep with our clients, really get to know their business, get to know the people and the personalities involved. And that's when we can add the most value. Right. If someone is an, is a sporadic M and a client where every time they have an M and a deal, they interview three or four firms, us included after we've already represented them, mm-hmm. you know, that's probably not a client we're going to you know, be able to go deep with number one, and we're probably going to tell them they would be better suited just to find a law firm that that right. is more of a one-off. Right. So we could say that you're interested more in relationships than transactions. That's correct. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Um, what What's your vision now for Nelson Mullins in the Southeast? You're you're now in the leadership of the firm. What do you have? What is your vision for the the middle market company support? that you provide and that you lead on behalf of the law firm? Well, you know, uh, a lot of lawyers have a sort of an entrepreneurial itch to scratch. And and fortunately for me, I've been able to do that within Nelson Mullins. When I first uh, arrived in the fall of 2006, the firm had about 380 lawyers. And I I don't remember how many offices we had at the time. But um, fast forward to today, we just uh, finished an, a combination with Broad and Cassell in Florida, mm-hmm. which is part of our middle market service offering, you know, mm-hmm. just rounding that out geographically speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, we're now 750 lawyers in 25 offices. Um, uh, basically, we have Boston to to Miami covered on the eastern seaboard and Denver and L.A. Uh, west of the Mississippi. Um, I think we will continue to grow uh, as it makes sense nationally, but we're really focused on the East Coast right now. As far as if you look at our platform, we're, we're really the only AMLA 100 firm that has both the Carolinas, mm-hmm. North and South covered every market. Mm-hmm. Nashville, Tennessee, which, as you might know, is one of the fastest growing cities mm-hmm. in, the, in the Southeast. Raleigh, North Carolina is as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and Atlanta, which is our largest office, at 155 lawyers. And then we're the only Amlaw 100 firm that has all of that plus the whole state of Florida now. Mm-hmm. Because the larger Florida firms, when they expanded outside of Florida, they went to Atlanta mm-hmm. and then they went to New York. They skipped mm-hmm. all that other stuff. So, right. so these are the, the markets that I've just described are historically middle market transactional and business markets right so uh, it really does solidify our 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 uh, you know our our emphasis on the middle market um you know i'll just give you an example spartanburg greenville south carolina corridor has an amazing amount of middle market companies that no one has ever heard of Mm -hmm. but it's really solid corporate market now, Kirkland and Ellis out of Chicago, they're, they're not going to go into that market. They mm-hmm. don't care about that market. That's mm-hmm. not what they're focused on. Mm-hmm. Now, if one of their private equity clients happens to buy a company, I guess they would go there. But we are actually proactively marketing and networking within those markets because it's, there are $400 million revenue companies mm-hmm. in Spartanburg that you've never heard of. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're focused on. We feel like given we have – people in all those markets, maybe not even M&A people, but our, our lawyers in, in um, Greenville, if, if they 
come across a transaction that they're not used to handling, they'll refer it to us mm-hmm. in Atlanta. So mm-hmm. it's it's uh, it's a great platform for middle market companies in the southeast. So part of the vision then is geographic that you are expanding geographically to cover major middle market centers. Well, the demographic shift has been to the Sun Belt. Uh-huh. And the Sun Belt, as you know, runs across the southern United States from California all the way to the East Coast. However, right. the part of the Sun Belt that we happen to reside in, uh, you know, from basically uh, Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. mm-hmm. down to Florida, and then as far west as, as I guess, Texas. We're, we don't have any Texas offices yet. But that is the part that is probably the fastest growing demographically. Uh And Florida is now the third most Mm -hmm. uh, populated state in the United States. Mm -hmm. So that was another reason to go there Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because a lot of people from the Northeast and the Rust Belt are moving there. And and Atlanta is still growing. What are you going to be doing, though, for specific companies? client benefits or is it pretty well you're pretty comfortable obviously with the culture nelson mullins but are you going to be leading the firm in any direction culturally to try to continue to differentiate your service from you know the many others that are out there well we're constantly uh looking at the market and seeing what other firms are doing Um, Fortunately, some of our um, larger competitors have continued moving upstream Mm -hmm. and increasing their hourly rates in Mm -hmm. that process. So Mm -hmm. right now we we have something to offer the market, Um, basically large firm. You know, we're we're an AMLAW 100 firm right now. We're about number 87 on the list. But with our recent combination with the Florida firm, we should be moving up to somewhere in the 60s. Uh, as far as the largest revenue um, firms in the U.S., by, and that's measured by revenue by AMLA, uh, American Lawyer. Um, but right now, we still have a cost advantage over our, what we would consider our peer firms by virtue of of uh, lower hourly rates than our competitors and combined with a lower uh, cost infrastructure, which we've always had because – we run our entire back office operation out of Columbia, South Carolina, which, mm-hmm. you know, is a right. lower-cost market. Right. Uh, some of the big Boston firms and New York firms have moved their back office people to the Rust Belt mm-hmm. to take advantage of the mm-hmm. same thing we had built into our system. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I have to say, uh, the difference is our people, they want to live in Columbia. I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure the people who have been living in Boston and New York for mm-hmm. 20, 30 years do mm-hmm. not want to move to Akron. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so um, right, right. Our, our people are very happy, uh, and right. it's just we did it naturally. The other firms are right. having to force it. So. Right. So along the way, I mean, you've had maybe dozens, even hundreds of customers in your several years uh, as an attorney doing mergers and acquisitions, capital raising and such. What are some of the common denominators uh, that you see in middle market success, and, and what are some of the common factors and failures for middle market companies? Well, the number one thing I would say is that uh, there are lots of good concepts out there, um, you know, products, services. But to me, uh, the the main differentiating factor as to whether a company, you know, moves forward is the management team. Mm -hmm. Um, I've seen very good, you know, software products that had a poor management team and usually when I say poor management team, it's not that they weren't smart people, but they weren't focused enough mm-hmm. on their core business. What happens is they get sidetracked by 
a shiny object over here and they start chasing things that mm-hmm. aren't core to their business while they're trying to grow. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it really takes their, their uh, focus off the things that they need to be focused on to move mm-hmm. to the next level. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're a bus- bigger business and you can afford more infrastructure, some of these side ventures might make sense. But in the critical growth stages, the management team has to have a business plan that they are religiously following. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, the, the failures that I've witnessed over my career have largely been human failures. Mm-hmm. And that, that it wasn't the product that was a failure or the service that was a failure. It was really the management team's mm-hmm. lack of focus that caused them to fail. Mm-hmm. Or, or they made mistakes like over-levering the company or something like that. But typically mm-hmm. it's, it's – I, I think – companies that really grow spend a lot of time thinking about strategy and then and then and then developing tactical steps to get there mm-hmm. so focus good management um good capital structure good capital structure you know sometimes uh they will go ahead and spend money on infrastructure that uh, that's a a little bit ex- seemingly extravagant for where they are in the growth cycle, uh-huh. but it's setting them up for when they get the to the next level, they're ready to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Today in the Wall Street Journal on the front page, there was a big article about how private equity funds are getting into lending, becoming more and more non-banks. What are your thoughts on uh, the new direction that capital seems to be flowing in these middle markets? Do you Do you agree with that, that you see more of this? and? Obviously, we're a middle market, specialty finance company, but yeah, I, I, I think all you know the non-bank alternative lenders have grown a lot in the last five years. You know, it back in five years ago it was probably primarily hedge funds that were doing the lending, but now you've got specialty finance companies, private equity funds raising debt funds to provide debt. I think it's great for the marketplace because the uh, enhanced regulations on banks Mm -hmm. have made it very difficult for some of the middle market banks to keep up with the entrepreneurship Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. their clients. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes that uh, alternative money might be a little bit more expensive, but otherwise it would be unavailable. Mm -hmm. And certainly you can't always raise equity to, to lower your cost of capital. So um, I think it's a great uh, – um, I think the market will continue maturing. I think the products will be more user-friendly for the customers as the market in non-bank um, market mm-hmm. continues to evolve. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think there will be plenty of opportunities for, for the alternative lenders. Mm-hmm. Let's – we've talked about markets, law firms, culture, uh, success factors. Uh, but I think also our listeners like to know about our guests personally um, – so what what enabled you to get to this leadership position at Nelson Mullins? You've been in you know law for a couple, few decades now. Uh, you're a leader here in the Atlanta business community, uh, a keynote speaker at many conferences, particularly in M&A. What do you attribute that to? And along the way, uh, you know, rarely are things go, go in a straight line. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about some of your adversity that you encountered in building your career and now your position at Nelson Mullins? Well, yes. Um, you know, it, it's hard to answer the question as to how I got where I am now. I think uh, when I look back on it and I try to figure out why I ended up in leadership positions versus many, many able people at the firms where I've practiced, 
you know, I think it boils down to emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. Um, um, My peers have always told me that I can read a situation Mm -hmm. and really read the tea leaves without anyone saying a word. Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, I tell our people all the time, you cannot discount emotional intelligence or street smarts mm-hmm. um, because uh, there are plenty of people who are academically strong but you know being able to discern um, what the other side in the negotiation what they're trying to get to by their their cues is, is hugely important mm-hmm. in a transaction it's also important in management because uh, people who come to my office to talk to me about an issue, sometimes they're telling me very emotionally what their issue is, but they're really not saying what their real issue is. Mm-hmm. And, and I can mm-hmm. figure out what their real issue is. Mm-hmm. Most of the time in a law firm, professional services firm, they're complaining about one thing so that they don't look uh, like they're being um, uh, selfish or or childish. But what they're really getting into is they're comparing themselves to someone else in our system mm-hmm. who got something better than they did. Mm-hmm. That, that happens in professional services firms and businesses mm-hmm. across the board. That They're happy in a vacuum until they see that Jane got more, yeah, $20,000 higher bonus, and then suddenly right. they're irate. And right. so you know, being able to deal with those kind of situations in a mature way without getting emotional yourself is – is key. Uh, sometimes I do get a little bit angry, but um, I try not to show it when I'm dealing with mm-hmm. with uh, mm-hmm. that particular person because it, it it lessens your you know effectiveness. effectiveness. Yeah, but some emotion is good, and you're saying that's how you read the tea leaves and oh yeah, read absolutely. In M and A situation, absolutely. I mean, sometimes in M and A, you absolutely even if you're not mad, you have to fake like you're mad uh, or, or to act like you're losing yeah, when or, you're really not. Yes. Make yes. the other person there, feel there like all, they're winning. All sorts of, game, <laughs> all sorts of things that happen in M and a deals to right. posturing and things right. like that. And, right. But you have to make it genuine or it doesn't work. Um, you know, adversity that I've had to sort of overcome, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, when you're a young parent, uh, there's only so many hours in the day, and uh, I, I have to credit my wife Rebecca. I, you know, uh, she we made a decision when Michael, my oldest, was born that she was going to stay home. She was a successful banker at what was then South Trust Bank, and now is part of Wells Fargo through a series of mergers. But uh, she, we decided that the division of labor, she was going to stay home, take care of the kids. And I was going to be uh, the sole breadwinner, at mm-hmm. least for a while. And um, and I have to say, you know, she has uh, never made me feel bad about, you know, traveling or going out to dinner with clients because she knew that was part of my mm-hmm. job and what I needed to be doing. But that was very challenging there for, you know, probably the first 10 years of the kids' lives, trying to balance all of their be an active parent, mm-hmm. you know, build your business. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was building my business at the same time my kids were small. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it was like, uh, you know, uh, uh, 18-hour-a-day uh, yep. gig. So now that I'm a little older and, and, and the infrastructure is built and my kids are a little older, it seems a lot easier uh, than it was back during those days. But, uh, you know, I think the challenge was making sure I wasn't ignoring uh, my parental duties or duties at the household while I was building the business. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, one of the most fun things for me, uh, having built that business is I'm now, I've already successfully helped, uh, 
one of my chief lieutenants make full equity partner, and he now has a standalone practice. And, and quite frankly, even though we're still great friends, we don't really practice together that much anymore. Mm-hmm. He's a standalone mm-hmm. equity partner at Nelson Mullins. And mm-hmm. now I have uh, a, a new chief lieutenant who I'm trying to get her um, you know, to grow and, right. and she made non-equity partner last year and, and is on track to be an equity partner in a few years. And so that's, that's really fun for me is to, uh, do for them what, you know, uh, someone did for you. Yeah. Well, yeah. So we didn't talk about it, but when I was at Kilpatrick firm, uh, Hal Abrams was sort of my mentor. Hal died a few years ago, but he was, uh, he was a great lawyer. He taught me a lot about giving practical advice. He, he graduated number one in his class right. at Harvard Law right. School, so right. he could have easily been one of these issue-spotting lawyers, but mm-hmm. but not a practical lawyer, but he was very practical. He was brilliant, and uh, and Hal taught me how to be responsive to clients. Uh-huh. Uh, he's always get right back to the clients. You right. know, even if he was busy, he would say, I'll mm-hmm. call you back later. And, right. Know, um, right. That sort of thing. And uh, then Tim Mann, who is now the uh, – we were partners at the Kilpatrick firm as well. And uh, Tim uh, came to came to the firm and taught me, number one, how to delegate effectively because at the time mm-hmm. I was struggling on, on, on letting loose – of some things and trusting my colleagues mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. and and he told me that your practice would never be very big if you continue practicing the way you are. Mm-hmm. And so he taught me how to delegate and trust the people mm-hmm. who work with you. Mm-hmm. And that's been a great help. And, and Tim was really the first lawyer who shared the origination credit for mm-hmm. clients with me. Mm-hmm. And he taught me, he was very generous with that. And uh, Tim's now the general counsel of Louis, Louisiana Pacific Corporation in Nashville. Mm-hmm. But uh, he's not that much older than me. He was just kind of like my big brother at uh, mm-hmm. uh, in, in the law firm. But mm-hmm. uh, his self, you know, his um, uh, lack of selfishness and sharing credit and things like that taught me to do the same, and uh, that's what I've done to the people under me at Nelson Mullins. So it's personal development, which leads to organizational development, which ties also to your belief that uh, management teams. And the fact that people hire lawyers, not law firms, it's really down to the individual person and the team that gets developed from that person. And you as a leader are partly responsible for developing that skill. And, you know, I guess that comes from your, you know, the emotional intelligence that you talk about as well. It's not an issue. It's maybe it's a problem. It's a person that you have to read. That's right. And part of our, you know, strategic plan for the corporate department, um, which my my partner, Jeff Allred, is the corporate department chair, who's a seasoned public company executive and and lawyer. um, He developed a uh, a plan. And part of part of the plan is that the practices that we're developing are supposed to be transferable. And what that means is transferable to the next generation, because if I build a, a big practice, and Nelson Mullins, and I get to retirement age, and when I leave the firm, mm-hmm. that that business just goes poof overnight. Mm-hmm. That I haven't built anything to transfer to the people who have been working mm-hmm. with me for all that time. So mm-hmm. we're very uh, we're trying to not only have a great law firm today, but build for the next generation, because that's the only way you can build the infrastructure so that it's uh, valuable to the client base. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking a lot about your mentors. Your dad was a mentor. And uh, just the other day, you and I were talking about a, um, 
a favorite spiritual author, uh, a priest, John Claypool. And I had no idea that you had read his books or even knew him, and I knew him personally when I was going through my wilderness years, <laughs> going from corporate to entrepreneur myself. Yes. And I read a couple of his books and I met his wife, and he spoke several times at St. Philip's, and I was very inspired by his approach to adversity. You know, one of the sermons I heard him uh, make at St. Philip's was about good luck and bad luck, who's to say? Yes. And the implication was, you know, sometimes things in your life seem very adverse, but they're really good for you, and you don't see it at that very moment. Uh, could you share with our listeners how uh, John Claypool was sort of a spiritual mentor to you, and how, what did you gain from that, and how does that relate to how you lead people today? Well, John was a personal friend, um, you know, and uh, the way he taught his uh the way he taught just connected with me um and and his one of his main messages that he always weaved through every sermon or or book was that uh you know life is a gift mm-hmm. and when you when you think of life as a gift then it changes your outlook on even the worst days mm-hmm. and so you might Mondays might be particularly bad for some people but when you go step back for a second and say life is a gift what am I going to do with this day? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and John was just, uh, you know, when he was battling cancer, and I talked to him a lot during that time. You know, he was just upbeat and still positive about mm-hmm. life, still writing books, mm-hmm. still teaching homiletics at Mercer, mm-hmm. which he was the best preacher I've mm-hmm. literally ever heard in person. Mm-hmm. Um, and he could he could tell a story in such a way that it was interesting when you were listening to it. But then when you left and thought about it later, mm-hmm. you thought that what what always struck me about John is he had four or five major themes, and he worked them into everything so that over time you really got mm-hmm. to hear his theology. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he just he was just an amazing uh, uh, person to begin with, an amazing preacher. Um, and so I've read all his books and, uh, every once in a while I'll pick, pick up one I've already read and mm-hmm. read it again, just so I'd remind myself of all the, all the lessons he taught me. Mm-hmm. So you've been very blessed to have some great mentors in your life, in your career. What, uh, as we wrap things up, Michael, how would you coach our listeners, uh, middle market companies and others to uh, leverage their relationships with the law firms or the attorneys that they use to achieve the the specific either personal career goals or their personal uh, the, their business and company goals and objectives. Well, Michael, I think there are a lot of advisors that can add a tremendous amount of value to a, a middle market company, um, accounting firms, lawyers, uh, and other advisors. Um, and I would say that uh, really ask the advisors to think about not just the particular problem they're trying to solve, Mm -hmm. but how they could help the business. So, for example, a lot of times the outside advisors know another company that is right in the wheelhouse to do business with your client. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can tell you that um, if you make a big sale for a middle market company, they're going to be much happier with you than drafting a legal document. <laughs> right. um, and That's so, true. Uh, and so, That's true. And so, um, yeah. you know, uh, sometimes I uh, introduce companies to a lender. Right. It's simple stuff. It's, you know, right. uh, none of this is really, you know, 
uh, rocket science, so yep. to speak. Um, a lot of it's just blocking and tackling, but a lot of people don't look up from their desk long enough, you know, to to do that kind of thing, which right. they, they think, I don't have time to do that. They're but, too focused on the issue or the transaction. Exactly. When, yeah. I, when I first left uh, my old firm and got to Nelson Mullins, I spent 30% of every day mm-hmm. doing that sort of thing, connecting people, mm-hmm. knowing that over time that mm-hmm. investment would pay mm-hmm. off. Mm-hmm. And it has. I don't spend that much time every day doing that. I probably spend 10% now. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. But, uh, but it was great in the growth of my business. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Michael. In fact, you did that for us at Flock. You've introduced us to several capital sources, and we've used some of them and uh, about to use another. So, I even put my father-in-law in your deal. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So you better make him some money. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. And thank you, Michael, for your time today and the wonderful stories about uh, you know how you've taken uh, Nelson Mullins to a new level of leadership in the middle markets that you're competing in. Uh, I think it's really... Uh, I'm not surprised, but maybe our listeners will be surprised that it really it does come down to the lawyer, not the law firm. It's the personal uh, touch, the personal connection that you make. And uh, it re- really resonates me with me about your point about uh, people would appreciate more an introduction or a an approach or perspective on the overall business as opposed to a legal brief. So it's it, it's definitely – the company, the the person you're serving, not the issue itself. And so, you know, as I wrap it up, you know, I think right now I look at your life, you know, you were the son of an entrepreneur and you're now serving entrepreneurs. I can't think of a better background and uh, way to develop and, and build a career like this and having started that way. And that's why you're so unique. Well, it's a lot of fun and uh, I greatly appreciate you having me here today. Thank you, Michael. Okay. Thank you, Michael. And by the way, Michael, I, I hope you're not billing me for this hour, are you? Only, only half price. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. <laughs> Thank you for joining Michael Flock and his guests on the Capital Club Radio Show. For more information on future interviews, please visit us at flockfinance.com. This program is brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance, where clients are provided knowledge and insights to help them grow their business in complex and risky markets. Flock is more than a transaction.